And we believe that there is me. Did you just forget how we do this show? <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. It's just gone. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me today, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing today, sir? Uh, well, I am recovering from my failed saving throw versus disease, but I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah, you need to take a con bonus next time you level up. I keep going for Cha. I, I think it's. I, I always think it's going to help us succeed in this darn thing. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Once you start with it as a dump stat, it's too late. Hey, <laughs> I resent that. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Okay, so before we get into today's episode, we'll take a quick second to talk about why we're here, in case we have any new listeners, and let them know how they can get a hold of us. So first off, Caleb and I try to use these table topic episodes to share some of the wisdom that he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the advice we give and the opinions we share are not applicable at every table, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And that is, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct. So no matter what game system you play or what edition or what rules you use, don't use or misuse, if you're having fun, then you're playing the game correctly. Now, if anyone out there would like to get a hold of us to have some feedback or some comments or ask some questions, you can reach me on Twitter at the RPG Academy. You can reach my favorite co-host, Caleb, at... I'm at the Caleb G. That is correct. And you can always email us at podcast at the RPGacademy.com. Now, today's topic is going to be about magic. Now, we've done a, an episode about magic in the somewhat recent past, but that was a very crunch-heavy, this is how magic works in 5th edition. Today, we're going to do more of a high-level overview, because Caleb and I, if you uh, have not been listening for a long time, may not know, have vastly different opinions about magic and the role it plays in a generic, general-sense RPG game. So we're going to talk a little bit about what our different philosophies are, maybe explain a little bit about why they are that way, and then we're going to share some of the custom homebrew magic items that he and I have used in our games before. So Caleb, I'll start with you. When you go into a new game, uh, we'll make it generic, it doesn't have to be D&D, but you know, I think generally that's what you and I play, do you start with the 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 sense of magic is X and I might adjust it? Do you always start with the way the book would present it? Or like, what is your overall philosophy on magic? And not just magic items, but the idea of magic as pervasive in the world in your games. My philosophy when I approach a generic fantasy game is that magic is everywhere. Period. There are some cases where I have limited access to magic for story reasons. Uh, for example, there was one game I started to run where a cataclysmic event had destroyed most arcane and divine magic. It kind of severed the connection between the mortal world and the magical world. Uh, but over the course of the game that was rediscovered, um... The reason I did that specifically for that story, frankly, was that my players asked for that, and that was the game they wanted to play. Me personally, when I approach a fantasy game, I dive headlong into the classic stereotypes and tropes. Magic is everywhere. You can go to the wizard shop on the corner and buy a spell. You can go down to the blacksmith and get a magic sword it's everywhere it's part of the world shockingly that's not how i view things but uh, as we've established on several episodes before i'm a complicated person with uh idiosyncrasies and contradictions in my personality because i am on record multiple times that eberron is my favorite D, D session of all time 
And Eberron absolutely is the type of game you just described, where magic you know is pervasive everywhere, and most cities have magical ever-burning torch lights that line the cities, and they have magical trains, and you know it's just uh, magic is ubiquitous. And that's my favorite setting. But when I run a game, 99.9% of the time, I have nowhere near that much magic in the game. And magic is not ubiquitous. It is uh, rare and mysterious and hard to find. And not just in magic items, which I am, again, on record that I very rarely ever give them out. But just, you know, wizards are less common than other character classes. That uh, you're less likely to find a very powerful wizard as you are a very powerful warrior. So... We clearly have different viewpoints. With, with my contradictions aside, why do you think you view magic the way you do? Like, can you trace it back to a game you played, or that's just the way the book is normally written, that you enjoy those types of games? Like, What is it that has created your belief that magic should be the way magic is in most of the games you play? Well, there's a lot of different reasons I feel that way. Uh, I think the first and foremost is that that was the type of game I learned to play. My very first experience with Dungeons & Dragons, or a role-playing game in general, was Dungeons & Dragons 3.5, and 3.5 was very magic item, magic in general is everywhere kind of thing. So when I learned to play the game, magic was a part of it, so I just assumed that's how it worked. So that those habits are very much at the foundation of my gaming experience and knowledge. Uh, I think secondarily, the types of games that I enjoy playing, magic is kind of built in to the mechanics. If you go back to 3.5 and Pathfinder, if you take out magic items, if you take out easy common access to spells, spell components, alchemical, magical items, the game kind of falls apart. Mechanics like that almost require that type of power to be accessible by anyone. So secondarily, the types of games I prefer to play almost require magic to be there. So again, that's kind of building on the foundation I know. The third reason, which is in my mind kind of the most important, when I play a role-playing game, no matter what genre, I approach that game as an escape from the real world. It's a chance to have fun, relax, and try to forget about the average, humdrum, boring life that we all live. Magic makes that easier. It's a way to help separate the fantasy world from the real world. If I'm playing a game and I'm pretending to be a farmer who farms every day and doesn't ever do anything special, that's really boring because that's really close to real life. It's also really close to the first In the Name of the King movie until the you know plot happens. And he got a boomerang, which was totally <laughs> a magic boomerang. I don't care. Boomerangs don't do that. No, not at all. <laughs> but yeah, I want to separate myself from reality. So I want to play a game where crazy magical things happen. I want to play a game where anybody can walk to the store and buy a magic scroll and have an ever-burning torch and go to a cleric to get healed when his arm got chopped off and go to the wizard and get a, a magic spell to do whatever has to keep, be done. I find that to be really, really fun. And when I'm playing a game, whether I'm playing or running, and I want to escape reality, that's what helps me escape reality. Because it adds another level of difference between the game world and the real world. So I've been, I've been putting a lot of thought into this. Because this is a topic that we've talked about doing a couple times. And we decided on this topic a few days ago. So I've, you know, I've been doing some soul searching, trying to figure out why I do run games the way that I run them. And I think that I'm a, I'm a product of my environment and my experiences, as, as we all are. I started running games much earlier 
not just like longer ago, but earlier than you, I started playing, I believe I was around 12 years old and I'm, I'm terrible. Everything that happened to me either happened when I was 12 or it happened yesterday. Like I just, I don't have a great sense of memory for that. So I could have been eight. I could have been 14. I don't know, but I was somewhere in the age of 12. And I started with the Red Box, uh, Mincer Red Box Basic Edition, uh, which in that game, there was a bit more of a sense that magic wasn't ubiquitous. At least that's, that's my memory of it. And because I was 12 years old and I didn't really know what the heck I was doing, I ran very bad games where I can remember one of the first campaigns I ever ran. And this was again with my, my three best friends who I've talked about before, including Brandon, who is the one that he and I split the red box together. And it started off, the very first thing I did was give them all like artifact level magic items because I thought that would be so cool. And it basically destroyed the game because they were too powerful. And I had no idea how to deal with that. I basically gave them, you know, the magical key to every door that I possibly could put in front of them. So I, I learned very early that magical items make it harder to run the game. It makes it easier for the players to bypass puzzles and traps and monsters. And it just, my experience is the more magic you put in the game, the harder it is to run a game that is fun for me as the DM. The players, they probably had a blast. They were 12 years old too, and they were killing everything in the monster manual like it was nothing. Because that was actually my first campaign, by the way, is they got hired by a wizard who was trying to create a spell that would make him immortal. Of course, they didn't know that. And it literally was, they had to go and kill every creature in the monster manual in whatever order they wanted and bring back its heart. So that's what he needed for a spell. So I literally would just, they would pick out which monster they wanted to kill that week. And I would create a little stupid adventure about how they had to go find it and then fight it and then uh, take its heart. Again, I was 12. Bear with me here. But I also, I read a lot of I've always been a big reader. I've, I read a lot of fantasy, and I remember around the same time that I started learning uh, to run games, I was reading uh, Stephen King's uh, Eyes of the Dragon, which, you know, is your first introduction to uh, Randall Flagg, who was the court's magician, and he was like the only magician, and no one really understood what he did. He was, you know, mysterious and powerful. And then I also was reading, oh, Dragonlance, the Dragonlance uh, Chronicles, where Rasslin Again, magic was weird. No one really understood how he did what he did. And those are, the, those are the types of literature that I was reading at the time. And they obviously influenced my view on magic. So I, I was combined with I wasn't very good at running games. I gave my players magical items that broke the game and made it harder to run. And the fiction I was reading coincided with a low magical level type of game. And I think those are the things that I that kind of built my ideology that too much magic makes the game less fun for me, maybe not necessarily for my players. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think we're both saying really the same thing. Our earliest experiences with gaming, let alone our early experiences with the fantasy genre are still part of our motivation as GMs, even to this day. And there's certainly nothing wrong with either way to think about games and approach games. It's just one of the ways that we're both a little bit different with what we want to see in a game. Uh, and I, again, I don't know that we've tapped into any sort of like universal you know truth that other people don't know but you know the way you first learn to play the game informs how you will always play the game you know like you never forget your first love if you started off in a game that was high magic and you were you know teleporting across worlds and fighting super giant beholder monsters uh, right off the bat then you probably most likely will continue to enjoy those types of games that that becomes the standard that you normally play and there's going to be variants but that's where you start from I started from a very different place, and I think because of those reasons, I have developed my GMing style that I prefer to run low-level games. I prefer to run games that are more uh, like political uh, machinations rather than, you know, big damn hero type games. And having ready access to very powerful magic can can make those games harder to be fun, I think, because they're just so it's so easy. If you have a magical spell that just compels everyone to tell the truth, then you have to make up some BS reason why it doesn't work on your main bad guy, and which usually involves magic. And so it becomes like a magical arms race that, well, I have this, so I have this, well, I have this, so I have this, and it just it gets to like an absurd level. So it's just easier for me to run a game 
in my wheelhouse and a game. I know I can run a game that will be fun if I make it low level and I keep it low magic and it becomes difficult for me and intimidating to me to change that and try to run a game with high magic. Cause I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid that it won't be as fun. And there's another big difference between you and me. I love running the big damn hero games. I prefer a game where everyone can run around, be heroes, kill the monsters. I I get more fun running those games because, and my this is just my perception, and I may be wrong, but I think that's the kind of thing that my players really enjoy. I, I think that getting a chance to sit down for a few hours and do some really crazy over-the-top adventure with all kinds of magic boosts and teleportation and crazy weapons and skills and and just bonkers insanity is really fun for my players because it's a way to just get away from the the humdrum nature of life for a little while. So I feel very comfortable stepping into the role of as a GM when I say, okay, everyone's 15th level, everyone's 20th level, everyone has a ton of magic items. Everyone has magic armor and magic swords and rings of this and rings of that. That doesn't phase me because that just becomes background to the story. They are just the tools that facilitate the adventure. And if I were to approach a game as a GM that was more political intrigue, it was all social combat... That's the kind of thing that I'm not as comfortable running. I'm not as good at running those types of games. I get a little bit lost in the story. I try to figure out what people are going to do and prepare. And if this happens, then that happens, that kind of thing. And I get a little bit lost. And I don't feel that I can give my players as fun a game when that type of thing is happening. So, so really, I'm just playing to my strengths. I'm taking the easy way out, and I'm running the game that I feel most comfortable with that I can be the best GM at. And you're doing the exact same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, you are playing the game that not only you enjoy the most, but you know that you can run the best. Uh, I think both you and I, over the past few years, have started doing less preparation as GMs when we approach a game. We might not be 100% improv at the table, but we are definitely not writing out a story, writing an outline of plots and events and that kind of thing. So when we approach a game that we know we're maybe 90% winging when we're sitting down behind the GM screen, we want to do something that we know we're going to be able to do confidently and successfully. If I said, all right, I'm going to play a political intrigue game and it's going to be all about uh, debating and negotiating and figuring out the the political prowess of these different characters and, and negotiating between these different countries and envoys, there is no way that I could just sit down and do that and feel that I'd be able to do a good game. I personally... I wouldn't be scared or nervous, but I I know that it wouldn't be a fun game because I wouldn't really be able to, on the fly, figure out how to make those things interesting. Whereas you can do that, Michael. You are, are very confident in that type of game, so you could sit down and make that type of thing happen. Generally speaking, <laughs> there's always issues. But And I just want to clarify that we're not saying you can't run a mystery game with high magic and you can't run a political game with or a big damn hero game with low magic, but that's just our individual experiences and comfort level. Those, those match up well for us. And I, again, I completely agree. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm chasing the dragon. Some of the best moments I've ever had as a DM have come where my players have just been talking to each other for, for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour, maybe even an hour, just talking about, okay, well, what's going on? And remember when this happened, you know, three sessions ago, we met that guy and he said that really weird thing. Or when we met this one guy and he had that weird tattoo. And after about an hour of talking, they go, oh, 
I got it. It all makes sense. He's the bad guy. And, and and they're right. And, you know, all these clues that I have laid down probably terribly, but it, you know, but when it does work and they have that aha moment in the game, that is, is a feeling that I'm constantly chasing. I'm trying to get back to that. And I've said before, I don't particularly enjoy combat. Again, I'm not great at running it either. So I'm also playing to my strengths. Like, that's not a skill I have to run big elaborate combats where there's all these different set pieces. I, you know, I kind of know how it should work. I'm just not as good at running them as other GMs. So I chase the dragon of having that aha moment where they figure out a clue. They put pieces together. They unravel the mystery that I've been trying to lay since the beginning. So I want to run games where that's a possibility of happening. And for me, lower magic games make that much more likely than high magic games, coupled with my experience, my comfort level, and, you know, what I enjoy about the game. So do you think that this also reflects a little bit on how we trust our players in our games? Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I'm just I was thinking through because I've I've changed players a few times. I've had the same group now for quite a while, but over the course of my career it's been different. So the group that I play with now, I have never played in a game where they had quote unquote, you know, the nuclear arsenal and they never had that as an option. So I don't know what they would do with that because I've never I've never had them I've never had the opportunity to see that. So definitely a part of this debate also falls on the experience we share with our current gaming group. In my experience, I play with people who like having that magical nuclear arsenal, and I typically get the most fun out of the table with them because they expect that to be there. And I think part of it also is... Again, in, in my experience, we tend to play a lot less frequently than you and your group, Michael. So when we get together, we might only do a one-shot. Or we might only play a few hours of a campaign just because we don't have time. So trying to chase that dragon of the mystery and the details is harder because we're not playing every single week or every other week. So building a an intriguing mystery with details that go back to the very first session and might not be revealed for four or five or six games is really, really difficult. So I'm kind of bound by not only my players and my preference, but also the context in which we play. I don't get to play very often. I don't get to play weekly or every other week. So when I do get to play, I want to jump into what I find the most fun and what is the easiest story to continue from last time to this time. Yeah, and honestly, that makes complete sense when you when you explain it that way, that, yeah, if I was only going getting to play with my group once a month, even though I'm, I think I'm pretty good at running those types of games, it probably wouldn't work very well because they're not going to remember that word that was said before the character died or that tattoo they had, they're going to forget that type of thing. So it, it makes a lot more sense that based off of when you can play and how often that certain types of games make more sense. And yeah, if I'm only going to get to play once a month, then I probably wouldn't mind leveling every session. And, you know, I'm still looking at over the course of a year, I may now be at really high levels, which I'm not saying that you do that, but, you know, kind of mod putting ours together. I just, I, again, that makes complete sense to me why you would do it that way and why that probably would be more enjoyable to you. So kind of tangential to this, uh, kind of a, an area I want to take the topic into is I was listening to another podcast recently, uh, Total Party Thrill, which uh, is a friend of our show, Shane and uh, his uh, friend Ishan run that. I think they do a fabulous job. It's fairly new. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should. And one of the things they do is talk a lot about uh, a campaign that Ishan ran over several years in Eberron which is probably why I like it so much. And um, and this, there was a, they were talking about a situation that happened recently, and I, I'm going to screw up the details, so I'm going to try to just do it in general terms. But essentially, their characters were getting, to go, getting ready to go someplace, and they knew that there was something about that place that would make it very difficult for them to survive. So they 
stocked up on magical items that were specifically geared to counter the obstacles they would face in that area. And they were talking about, from the player standpoint, how they felt rewarded that they had learned, hey, if we go there, then X is going to happen. So how about we stock up on all these scrolls of counter X? Hopefully that still makes sense. And as I was listening to that, that was completely opposite of what my enjoyment would have came from. And I'm, again, I'm not saying they did it wrong by any stretch. I'm just trying to talk about the fact that there's different types of fun. So for them, at least for some of their group, the fun was, hey, you're getting ready to go to a challenging situation. And they were able to gather resources that would counter their problems. And that became fun for them because they felt like, hey, we did a good job. We adequately prepared for the situation. We didn't go into the, the Arctic without cold weather gear. We didn't go into the place with, uh, you know, underwater without having water breathing rings, you know, whatever the case may be. I don't find that particularly fun for me. I don't want gathering a certain resource to be the challenge. I want the challenge to be figuring out how to survive the obstacle. Um, so a, a dumb example, but one that makes sense is in our wrought iron game, which we just started. The first episode just came out and I think, yeah, this, this will be out before this. Um, we were getting ready to go underwater. And even though my character, based on the world we've created, I can hold my breath very, very long time, kind of like the pearl divers, uh, which is, it's even more than that. One of our members of our party can't do that. And we didn't know how long we were going to be underwater. So I said, hey, why don't we take one of our water skins and empty it and fill it full of air and make an air bladder. And that way, if we get trapped underwater and we need a breath or two, we can do that. Now, I have no idea if a medieval style water skin would actually be airtight. Who knows? But you said, sure, that works. And for me personally, that was a great moment. It was one of the best moments of that game for me because I had figured out a solution to a problem. The, the solution wasn't going and buying a ring of water breathing. It wasn't getting enough gold to afford a scroll of free, uh, free movement. It was, here's a problem. We can't breathe. Here's a solution that I came up with creatively to fix it. And to me, that's fun. And that's, again, if I have access to all kinds of magic, I'm never going to have that fun because I'm just going to be able to cast X spell and then the challenge is solved. Now, I think that's pretty interesting because that speaks really to the volumes of how you and I approach what's fun in a game. Because I think that solving a simple problem like that takes away from the big fun moments of the game. If I'm sending my players into whatever, the the deadly swamps of poison because they're going to adventure through the swamps and fight the evil druid and rescue the princess. I think it's more fun to focus on the adventure part of that, getting through the swamps, overcoming the traps, and environmental challenges, and then fighting the druid and saving the princess. I don't want to waste time with, okay, everyone's being poisoned all the time. Okay, constantly make rolls, constantly make checks. Oh, you just failed. Okay, take this much damage. Oh, how are you getting around this poisonous gas thing? I would much rather them find the resource of, oh, here's the ring of anti-poison. Done. Here's the scroll of nothing affects me for 12 hours. That kind of thing. And there might be an adventure to find one of those MacGuffins, that leads into this adventure, which I also think is more fun. Walking into a challenging situation becomes the background to my adventure. The fact that we're on the elemental plane of fire, the fact that we're in the poisonous deadly swamp, that's just the setting. I don't want that to be the focus. But that's in a, a fantasy game. Because I, to me, in a fantasy game, the average person knows that magic exists, and so they can just turn to magic. Like, okay, if we were playing a real-world game, and for some reason we had to go to the Arctic, I wouldn't find it logical that I would have to figure out how to survive in the cold. 
I would go to the sporting goods store and buy some Gore-Tex because it's there. It's part of our reality. Likewise, in a fantasy world full of magic, magic is part of the reality. So it becomes something common to help overcome these challenges so that in my game, I can focus on the big heroic adventure moments, not the common mundane, how do I survive moments. So and I think I've mentioned this before, but I think my ideology can be summed up. No, summed up's the wrong word. It can be explained. <laughs> There's too much. Let me sum up. Uh, about how I like to play Magic the Gathering. And I do not particularly enjoy putting together a deck in Magic the Gathering that is just very straightforward and very powerful. Even if it lets me win all the time, or most of the time, I don't enjoy that. I like putting together ridiculously complicated decks that require seven specific cards and that may not happen, but one out of every 50 times I play. But when it does happen, it is the coolest thing in the world. And it just sort of instantly lets me win. It's like, okay, I've got my seven cards. Nothing you can do about it. I win. Let's just start the game over. I live for those moments. And that again, that is, that's just my personality. That's what I enjoy about playing Magic the Gathering. And that's what I enjoy about problem solving in D&D. When I try to problem solve, I want to be able to go... This is not the way I was supposed to have solved this problem, but it works, and I love that. Which is also why Grease is my favorite spell of all time. I've had more fun casting Grease and more problems I have solved casting Grease than any other spell in the game. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that type of perspective when you approach a game. The, the whole point of this conversation, let alone the RPG Academy, is that there's a zillion different ways to have fun with the game. So whatever way you want to have fun, have fun. And this type of conversation exists to simply explain our different perspectives. As much as Michael and I agree on a lot of things about gaming, we also have very different perspectives when it comes to how we have the most fun in a game. And I can certainly have fun playing in a Michael game and following along with how he prefers to run a game and approach difficult problems and find challenging solutions. And at least I think Michael can have fun in my kind of game. We're going to find out in Rod Iron because there's going to be some big things happening. And I think Michael can have a lot of fun in that type of game too because he knows how to play along, but he also knows how to take care of himself in a game. When you're playing a game, you're not just a unwilling participant. You can, uh, you, you are able to participate in a way that you like and have fun. You have as much impact on the game and the game world as the person running the game. So if I'm running a game with a lot of big heroic moments and there's magic to make things easy, Michael still has the opportunity to make choices that have him have fun in the way he likes. There's nothing in my game that says Michael can't do that. There's no arbitrary rule that says Michael's crazy, off-the-wall, problem-solving goofiness, even though the magic item is right there on the counter, isn't possible. He just chooses to do something else. And that's cool. That's totally fine. And it's my responsibility as a GM to give him that opportunity, but also run the game the way I like to have fun, too. It's all give and take. And even if I say, okay, you're going into the swamps of poison, and oh, look, here's the wandering merchant who happens to have four rings of anti-poison. You could just go talk to him and buy them if you want to. Michael can totally say, no, screw that. I'm just going to walk into the swamps and see what happens. And then it's my job as the GM to say, okay, here's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and then Michael goes and sits in the corner 
playing uh, Brick Breaker on his phone for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, hopefully not. But no, and I think, and again, you did a good job summing it up, but I will still over-explain it because we have our roles to play in this game that we call the podcast, that we knew going into this conversation that we had vastly different ideas and, and preferences to how magic works in the game. But the point of this is that we both run games that we feel are pretty fun. We've had people plan our games and say, yes, you guys run good games. Doesn't mean we're the best DMs in the world, but we can run a decent game. But we run them very differently which just goes back to our, our original mo- motto that if you're having fun, you're doing it right. It doesn't matter if you want to run a game where every character starts at first level with an artifact level magic item. Or if you want to play a game that takes you five years to level up past level eight and they never have magic items. As long as everyone's having fun, great. Keep doing what you're doing. But everyone having fun also means the DM. The DM needs to have fun as well. So sometimes they're going to want to run a game That's the type of game they want to play. And then sometimes the DM needs to be like, you know what? I don't particularly enjoy running high-level games with everybody having magic items, but what the hell? Let's do it tonight. Everyone, one shot, 15th level, take five magic items, and let's just see what happens. And it's probably going to be fun for a while. And, you know, I like to try to experiment. Every time I run a new game, I try to do something a little bit differently. Maybe the next time I do that, I will try to do a high-level one-shot with magic items just to see how it goes. And I think that's the best outcome that any listener can take from a show like this. Try something new. Obviously, you've got your own style, your own preference, your own way of doing things. But this is an evolving hobby. Role-playing games are not static. They keep changing. New additions come out. New games come out. You, as the GM can change anything you want in a game with a house rule or hacking something or reskinning something. Nothing says that the game has to go rules as written, black and white, period, end of sentence, there is no way to change it. Anyone who says that is telling you the wrong thing. Games always change. You always have the ability to make a choice and do something differently. So, The only thing to take away from this episode, other than listening to the different ways we approach things, is understand that you have to free them to try something different. Just like Michael said, if you don't play crazy high-level games with magic items, try it. Try a one-shot. Try a different system that maybe makes it easier. If you're on my side of the table and you love playing those types of games, try your hand at something low-level, low-magic, more political intrigue and social combat. It's probably going to be challenging. It's probably going to be difficult. It might not be the most fun game or the best game you've ever run, but you've learned something now. And who knows? Maybe you'll stumble into something that is an absolute blast, and you can evolve as a GM. You can try something new, and you can add that to your repertoire. Uh, If I, as a GM, could never learn something new, I don't think I would have as much fun. And, And over the past few years that we've been doing this podcast, I have definitely been learning new things. I still play to my wheelhouse and my strengths, but I've been learning more about improv heavy narration or improv heavy GMing and sharing narrative control with my players. I've been growing and developing. I'm still not great at running a political intrigue, social combat mystery game, but it's a goal of mine. It's something I would like to learn to do. I would love to be able to sit down and run that type of game and have as much fun as I do when I'm playing a, a knockdown, drag out, combat heavy, magic being thrown everywhere kind of game. So, yeah, Michael and I have a lot of experience doing this kind of thing. We talk a lot, we can share a lot, but we're still learning, we're still growing. Uh, I don't think at any point a GM can say, I have learned everything I'm going to learn, and I am a complete. GM. I'm done. That's not going to happen. Well, you might say it, but you're a D-bag. And it's not true. <laughs> so I think that was very well said, so I won't try to restate it, but I will disagree with one point. 
that that is not the only thing to take away from this episode. Because we're going to move into next. We're going to share some of the homebrew magic items you and I have put into our games that maybe some of our listeners could take and put into their games because they think that might be fun. So I'll start. Uh, but this is a game or an item I put into my games very early on, back when I was still not sure uh, what I was doing. And and if you if you've listened till now, you probably will know exactly why I created the item that I did. Uh, it's a magic dagger that opens a portal somewhere. No, damn it! It is a, a cursed item, and this is going back to the old school version of cursed items. That once you began using a cursed item. You cannot stop using it, even once you've realized it's cursed, unless you have someone remove curse on you, or there's a couple other ways, which are probably not accessible in my world, uh, because I don't believe in high-level magic. But it was called the Sword of Sympathy, and it was effectually a plus-one magic item, a sword. It was also silvered, so it had special properties against wear creatures. But the reason it was called the Sword of Sympathy is it could not actually kill anything. If you use the weapon... And it would reduce a creature to zero hit points. It reduced it to one instead. So in my games where you don't get a lot of magic items, you this was a very powerful item, but it never actually could kill anything. Now, there are some ways that people could game the system, like give it to your tank and let them take everything to one, and then the wizard casts fireball and takes out the rest of the army. But I really enjoyed the aspect of someone going, oh, this is a magic item. I rarely get these. Oh, look, it's powerful. It does these cool things. Why doesn't this thing die? Because it, it makes them makes the player think, that the creatures they're fighting have just ridiculous numbers of hit points. Because they're like, I did 12, I did 8, I did 15, I did 12, I did 8. Why won't this thing die? Because it never actually kills them. Okay, so why did you come up with that item? Was it just something you thought would be fun to inflict on your players and have them try to figure it out? Or did it have something to do with the story? couple different reasons, actually. One is it was a counter to some of the overpowered magic items I had given them previously in some of the early games where it made it too easy for them to kill everything. So I gave them a magic item that seemed powerful, so they would use it. It was cursed. They couldn't get rid of it, and it actually hampered them a little bit. So this was me being a very young DM and trying to fix problems in-game by creating problems in the game. Uh, I thought it would be a fun challenge to try to figure out why uh, why it wasn't working. And then... There was also in the back of my head, there was the idea that there would be a way to unlock it and it would then allow the, the wielder to kill with it. It was, it was sort of like you had to prove your worthiness that it would be, uh, that you could do this and then it, the extra powers would be unlocked. It never got that far, but that was, I, like, I didn't have it planned out that they did X, Y, or Z, but just in my head, I thought, well, if they keep it and they, they keep using it, maybe you become worthy, like Excalibur, and then it loses that aspect and becomes truly powerful again interesting okay see i thought you were just gonna say you were kind of being a dick and wanted to give them something that didn't work right well that was part of it because <laughs> you were 12 right yeah pretty much i think i might have been <laughs> like 14 for that one i don't know okay so what about you so what are one of the one of the magic items you've created in a game well a lot of the magic items i use in games are pretty much just straight from the book because i have no problem saying magic is everywhere the stuff in the book is just the stuff that's on the shelf at the wizard's Walmart. It's just what you can go obtain. Uh, a lot of times when I run games, I just say, you've got X gold to start the game, buy whatever you want, and go from there. Because I trust my players to kind of be responsible. Come on down to WizWorld, where the prices are cheap and the floors are sticky. Because of that grease spell that that one jackass keeps casting everywhere. <laughs> everywhere! But I have made some specific, unique magic items. Sometimes it had to do with the story. Sometimes it was just, I wanted to try something different and see what happens. An example of something I made that didn't have anything to do with the story, I just thought would be cool, was a... Uh, I had a couple different versions of it. Sometimes it was a torch. Sometimes it was a... Uh, basically a bomb or a grenade, but it was an item that would radiate an aura, and within that aura, it would duplicate the effect of the Bane spell. So the Bane spell from the old 3.5 era, uh, well, I don't know if it was actually the spell, I was using it more to duplicate the weapon ability, 
where it would give you extra damage against a specific enemy. So I said, okay, instead of just having to figure out what type of enemy you're going to go fight and find the sword that has that enhancement cast on it, you can just bring these consumable items. And you trigger it off, and there's a 30-foot aura, and all of your weapon attacks in that aura carry the effect as if they had this weapon enhancement. So my idea was, it's kind of fun, it's more exciting, it lets players have a consumable resource that makes them more effective in combat, but they don't have to waste all their money on carrying four different swords if they want to be prepared to fight four different monster types. All right, no, that that makes sense. Um, I think I've mentioned kind of somewhat before earlier about legacy. Um, one of the things I've done a lot in, in my games is if I do give someone a magic item, I attach legacy mechanics to it. And just that, you know, I don't want you at some point to throw away your plus one dagger because you found a plus two dagger uh, because that just doesn't feel right to the fiction to me. So I would prefer that your plus one dagger eventually becomes a plus two dagger. Like essentially it levels up as you level up and it, you know, it, it gets additional powers at certain levels, that type of thing. But one of the other magic items, I think I mentioned this one before, but when we did the A New World game, I gave Evan a magic hammer. And this was, you know, it has been a long time since I had really given any magical items out. So it was kind of unusual that all the characters started with something magical in that game. And it's very rare that I give magical weapons. I'm more likely to give magical items that do interesting things because, again, that fits my style of creative problem solving. Uh, But I gave him a magical item. That was, in a lot of ways, one of the most powerful magic items I'd ever given anybody. But it had, of course, its Michael-style drawbacks. Um, It was a hammer, and it was called the Oath Hammer. And I think I had just watched the first Thor movie. That's probably where this was inspired by. Uh, Because there's a part where Odin whispers to the hammer and then throws it, the whole if you're worthy thing. But essentially, this was an Oath Hammer that I think it was like a plus one, plus one. Except, once you had hit something with it and done damage... You could then swear an oath against that creature uh, or PC or monster, whatever it was. And then it became like a plus four, plus eight weapon against only that creature. It got negatives against anything else. And it stayed that way until that creature died. So essentially you hit something once, you really, really want it to die. You swear the oath, you have a mega weapon against that creature. The drawback was, is if you don't kill that creature then that effect never goes away. So let's say you're fighting someone, you swear an oath, and then they surrender. Well, do you just murder them? Because now they've surrendered. But if you keep, if you just take them prisoner, then your weapon is effectively nerfed against everyone else in the entire world except for the one person you now can't kill. Or what if you swear the oath on something that then runs away from you and you can't ever find it? So the fact that I gave him the super powerful weapon, I think it's important to note, he never once used that power in the game because he was concerned about the drawback of using it, which I would have liked to hit for it to have been used, but I love the fact that it just wasn't something that got used all the time, because that's not what I wanted to give him. Man, I, I, I want to like that, but what you said at the end makes me hate it. I love the fact that you created something that was really unique, and that you did build into it a a consequence for using its ability. But I hate the fact that then the player, not the character, the player then made a decision. I will not do this because I don't want that consequence. And ultimately it's fine. That was a great game. He was a great player in that game and it didn't have any negative impact because he chose not to do that. But me personally, I I don't think that that was a successful attempt because the player got to make a choice that was essentially defined by the mechanics, not the game. Now, the character could have said, I choose not to do this because I don't want to be without my weapon, or I choose not to do this because 
of whatever reason. I feel too much of a risk, that kind of thing. But if that happened, then I as a GM would have constantly thrown situations at that character that almost forced that choice to be made. Of course, on the flip side of that, constantly throwing really high-level creatures that he just has to kill also kind of defeats the purpose of that interesting dynamic of the weapon. So there's no real right answer. Well, the only thing I would counter, because I agree with you, uh, was that that game just kind of died. Spoilers, if you haven't listened to those yet, they just stop. That there would have been things that had come later that would have given him the opportunity to uh, to use it. And there was, in the back of my head, that I was I was working toward maybe some sort of like duel, where it would be like a one-on-one fight to the death, which would be the perfect opportunity for that to come out uh, and be used. But I just, I like the idea that I gave him a powerful magic item, but the drawbacks were so that you couldn't just use it all willy-nilly. All right, so what about you? What, what's another magical item you've created? Uh, another one I came up with, very utilitarian, very simple. It was uh, a notebook. And whatever you drew in the notebook became real so it was a a thing where you would draw it on the page then rip the page out and then it would pop into reality and and it had limitations on it 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 was uh like some of the lower level spells that created items so you could you could make a weapon but it couldn't be a magical weapon uh you could make a a thing like a table or a chair or a rope but it wouldn't last forever. There was a limitation on how long it would last before it would just vanish. And the book itself had a a set number of pages. So that was its own limited resource because you ripped out a page every time you used it. Uh, So it it wasn't like an end-all, I can just constantly draw whatever I want. It It was, there's 50 pages in the book or whatever it was in that time. So 50 times... I can basically have any item I need to solve a problem, but once I've done it that 50th time, the book's empty and the magic is gone. That's pretty cool. I like that one. I I wanted it to be a easy but still kind of creative solution to the, hey, we're going into a dungeon. We need to have an explorer's pack with all kinds of random gear, but I don't necessarily want to play to that trope of the one character who has a hundred pounds of gear just randomly strapped to his or her body so he can be prepared for anything that comes along. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I'm fine with that. Like a lot of times I don't care. I'll just do the whole, if you need a piece of equipment, you probably have it kind of hand wave. Right. But, but this was a way to actually make it kind of creative. Yeah. I'm definitely in the camp of if it's normal mundane items, you probably have it, but that's the type of thing that as a player I would enjoy because I would try to figure out not only would I would I use that, but I would still try to find a complicated to, way to use it. So it's like, oh, look, we need a doorknob. I'm not going to draw a doorknob. I'm going to draw, and I'll, I would think of something crazy that would that would duplicate the effects of a doorknob in that situation for me. Okay, <laughs> that does bring up one. I wasn't going to going. To, it wasn't one of the ones I'd brought to the table, but I uh, I did a similar not similar thing. I did a thing with a book. Where and I end up reading a story uh, by Terry Goodkind, the the book of truth, uh, sort of truth series that kind of had the same thing. And I think even in Harry Potter, the Chamber of Secrets does the same thing. But I invented it first, at least you know chronologically to them. I'm sure I'm not the first one. Where basically there were two books, and you could write in it like a journal, and the words would appear in the other book, and then they could write and it would come back. And I think at some point that became an official item. I think fourth edition that was a magic item you could buy. But I've been doing things like that for years and years and years. And usually the person on the other end wasn't who you thought they were. And a lot of times they would give you bad information or you were secretly working for the bad guy because I'm a prick. Uh, But the other one I want to talk about specifically was an item called the skeleton key that I created. And again, I think I've read in books since then that this has been invented by in other stories but at the time it was original to me where it was basically it looked just like a skeleton key so it's just you know a stem with two prongs and the head looked kind of like a skeleton and it would unlock any door it didn't matter if it had a keyhole it would it automatically magically fix it but it's true power and i think it had limited charges but basically you could stick it into anything and it would create a door there so you could stick it into the side of a house and it would just uh, form a door 
and you would be able to walk inside. You could go through a vault. You could walk into the middle of a volcano. You know, basically just you could create a door anywhere into something. And at the end of that game, the players used it on a dam to destroy a city. I like that item. That sounds really fun. <laughs> it definitely was utilitarian, uh, but uh, always abused because my players are jerks. <laughs> so do you have any more you want to talk about? Eh, I mean, we could go on talking about stuff for a while, but I, I think we've hit some pretty good ones. And hey, you know what? Maybe if our listeners want more of these types of things, they can let us know. And maybe we could have uh, an episode all about uh, homemade homebrew magic items, or maybe we could do a couple articles about it or some posts on the site. So yeah, if you guys like this kind of thing, let us know. And if you have any of your, of your own that you would like to share, please uh, comment here on the forums on Facebook, let us know, and uh, maybe we can revisit them in a future episode with yours, or we might compile them together on the site somewhere as a list of various homebrew items that uh, other people could steal. All right, well, we will move on. Uh, the last couple things we're going to talk about, we are going to touch on a catacon because we are contractually obligated to do that. Uh, and then we have a couple new uh, reviews that we need to read from iTunes as well as Stitcher. So uh, we'll start with our catacon news. Um, I don't think this has been announced on an episode yet, but we do have some vendors who have signed up, uh, particularly Bell Comic and Games is going to be on site as our only general merchandise official vendor. Uh, they are going to have a bunch of merchandise for people to check out and to buy. We uh, contacted Omega Base 7, which is a somewhat local gaming group, and they are going to bring an Artemis Bridge Space Bridge Simulator game, uh, which I didn't know what that was at the time, but it looks really cool now that I know what it is. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, essentially, it's like a Star Trek simulator. You have five different consoles set up, like navigation, communication, engineering, and you have one person be the captain, and there's these various scenarios that you play, and every person has to play their role and work their console and, you know, divert power to the dilithium crystal chamber or to shields, and basically you're trying to survive the simulation. And that sounds super awesome to me. I'm pretty excited just to make Star Trek nerdy jokes all weekend. Well, when I mentioned that we we were going to bring this, uh, both James and Kat from One Shot Campaign were super excited about it. Uh, so there's already been some talk about perhaps dressing up as characters and doing a special guest star version with them and us and a couple other special guests. Uh, that could be awesome. Or horrible. Either way, it's still awesome. Horribly awesome or awesomely awesome, but awesome will definitely be in there at some point. Uh, we have finalized the Kickstarter campaign. All the details are pretty much set. We just need to get them written in a way that makes sense, which basically means Caleb rewriting what I wrote. Uh, we have started working on the Kickstarter video, which I'm going to try to do myself this year. Uh, again, Chris from NPC Cast did us a solid last year that we will never be able to adequately repay. Uh, but I've been playing around with iMovie a little bit for our YouTube channel, and I'm at least going to give it a shot to do it myself this year. Uh, very excited about that. Uh, honestly, I, I'm at the point now where I just want to push go just to, just to know, just know what's going to happen. Because I'm still I'm terrified that we won't make it, but I'm confident that we will. Uh, so just the quicker we get to next month on the 21st, the better. I think this is going to be a very good Kickstarter. Uh, we've got some new things uh, in the works, building upon our lessons learned from last year. I think that this is going to be a lot easier for us to run behind the scenes. And I think it's going to be easier for our fans, listeners, and the people we might not know and are coming to us for the first time to jump in and get excited about a catacomb this year. One of the big things we are going to be able to offer organized play. I've been in contact with the regional uh, coordinator for D&D Adventures League and also uh, for Pathfinder Society, and we should be able to offer both. I'm also talking to Pelgrane Press about having some 13th Age organized play. Uh, there as well. So we should definitely have a contingency of organized play events. Uh, we have a couple sponsors that are already lined up that are really looking to support us with some donations to help us put the event on. But ultimately, end of the day, just like last year, we just need people to show up and play games. Sponsorships, fantastic. Donations are amazing. 
if we can get enough people just to buy a badge and show up, that covers everything. And, 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 you know, we can get to some of the stretch goals with that extra money, but what we need is people to come out and play games. So I think that is basically most of the news for a catacon. I think most of it's already been covered, so I don't want to recover all of it. Uh, and we're going to move on to the last section. We do have some new, uh, iTunes and Stitcher reviews to read, and I need to double check the math, but I think we have hit our first 10. I'll double check that. But if you don't remember, we have a contest going on right now for every 10 new reviews we get on iTunes or Stitcher. We are going to give away in a Catacon badge as well as a $30 gift uh, card money at Gen Con this year. So I'm pretty sure we just hit our first trigger. So once we confirm that and we get closer to Gen Con, we will put out the ways that you can enter that. Anyone is eligible who listens to this. You don't have to have been the person who wrote it or one of the people that wrote that review. You just have to basically submit your name once we open it up for submissions. But with all that out of the way, I'll turn it over to the dulcet tones of the Crunchmaster himself to read these new reviews. All right. So we've got three new reviews on iTunes to read, as well as a review from Stitcher. Our first review on iTunes is from our good friend, The Scando, who we chat with all the time on the website and on Twitter. Uh, Scando titles this review, Awesome Podcast slash Podcasters. This is a great podcast with amazing podcasters running it. Michael and Caleb do a great job of breaking down running games in table topics, introducing players to many awesome games in field trips and trials, and running awesome campaigns. They are also super responsive on Twitter and give amazing advice for new-time DMs to old veterans. They've helped me grow and craft my game through every one of their episodes. If you are looking for a podcast to help you grow as a role player and game runner, this is it. Thanks, Scando. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, man. Appreciate that. Our next review is from Thorsmark. And Thorsmark titles this review, Great D&D Pod. This is one of the few D&D pods that offers advice for players and DMs in a largely unstructured talk format, and so I generally prefer it to other podcasts. The hosts speak in plain enough language, and it has good quality audio. Keep it up, guys. Thanks, Thorsmark. We appreciate your feedback. And we will try, but no promises. We never make any promises here on the Academy. And our last review on iTunes is from Monkey Pie, parenthesis Monkey Pie. I don't know why this person has named him or herself twice. Well, I think because the first one, it, you could look at it as Monkey P. So maybe that's like clarification. It's possible. But uh, I, I'm going to say that this person likes to speak about him or herself in third person twice all the time. Hello, Monkey Pie Monkey Pie is here. Monkey Pie Monkey Pie is writing this review. Monkey Pie Monkey Pie likes the RPG Academy. I'm into that. And Monkey Pie Monkey Pie writes, have I really not done this yet? Maybe Monkey Pie Monkey Pie is too confused with multiple names. And that's why he or she forgot to write this review. But anyway, Monkey Pie Monkey Pie writes... The RPG Academy is a wonderful, helpful podcast which covers a range of RPG topics and show types, all of which are wonderful. If you are a fan of RPGs, no matter what it is that you like, you'll be able to find something that you love in the RPG Academy, from their table topics episodes where they talk gaming and roleplay theory, to their show and tell episodes where they interview passionate people about their projects and their trials episodes, which involve actual play of symptoms they are playing for the first time. Truly a worthy recommendation. Thank you, Monkey Pie, Monkey Pie. Thank you, thank you, Monkey Pie, Monkey Pie. I felt like I should have read that review twice. Like, back-to-back. Back. Or we should have both read it at the same time! <laughs> oh, stereo! Oh, monkey pie, monkey pie, we let you down. I'm sorry. Yeah, very sorry. But maybe we'll do that, you know, three years from now. Maybe when we're in the same room. <laughs> It'll be easier. Fantastic. All right, so we have one left from Stitcher. Yep, this is from Mudducker. And it is titled, Thanks, Michael. So I don't think I'm going to read this review. But I will, because it's my job. That's right. Started from episode one, working my way to current. You have put a lot of hours into this, and I thank you. 
If you want to learn new tips and tricks for your DMing skills, learn about new games other than D&D, you can learn to play and hear some amazing storytelling through real play adventures. RPG Academy is the show for you. Get on it. Huzzah! Huzzah! So that is all of our new five-star reviews. As always, we very much appreciate any reviews you give us. It really, really, really helps a lot. And I know every podcast in the world says that, and it is always true. So thank you, writers, for your time of giving us these reviews, and please keep it up. Absolutely. Thank you all. And Caleb, thank you for joining me on this Sunday morning afternoon now. And uh, I think that's it. So uh, for Caleb, this is Michael, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGAcademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash vrpgacademy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.